Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. Right now, Israel is in one of the most sensitive situations that it has been in recent years. It all started about a week ago when the Israeli authorities arrested in Jenin, they arrested a Palestinian Islamic Jihad senior member by the name of Basim Saadi. He was the head of the terrorist organization's operation in the West Bank area. Now, fearing that the Palestinian Islamic Jihad would retaliate and attack Israelis all over the country, particularly in the south, our army imposed road closures throughout the Gaza border communities and have continued throughout this past week. For example, Sapir Academic College in Stero, which is in Negev, started holding classes online pending a change in security tensions and life in other spheres has also become interrupted. Now, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a terrorist organization, is known to have anti-tank guided missiles and has targeted both civilian and military vehicles in Israel. They have killed civilians and soldiers, and in particular, the fellow they arrested now, Basim Saadi, was pushing to restore sub-operations, according to Israel's security agency assessment. Israel's security apparatus confirmed that this intense reaction was due to a real and imminent threat from terrorist organizations. So we have a situation where we in Israel are living under an umbrella of fear of attacks by terrorist organizations on our very borders, both from the West Bank and from the Gaza area. So the, the concern for the safety of Israeli citizens is, and soldiers is fully justified. If a car with civilians was targeted and hit, it would be cries that the people that the proper precautions weren't taken by our security forces. As such, the prime minister held a security assessment uh, a week ago, and he held, he held this meeting with security officials to determine what should be the next step. The uh, roads in the south were originally closed; some were EO, reopened. Now they're closed again. The vast majority are locked down to all civilian vehicles. Reservists have been called in by the army to bolster the Gaza division. Two of my grandchildren uh, who serve in the army were called in on Shabbat because of the security situation. So the security units are at the highest levels of alert 
and with the they have an Iron Dome missile defense system ready for any sign of potential rocket fire, and indeed they've been shooting down rockets. So, in terms of security forces, the Israeli army is learning from experience and applying lessons learned from last year's Operation Guarded of the Wall. However, after consecutive days of living with closures and curfews, it's time to ask who has the upper hand here, Israel or the terrorists? It is an untenable situation for Israelis to live in fear because a terrorist leader was arrested. Freezing the entire south of Israel makes living there a nearly impossible task. One of Israel's biggest projects over the past few years has been bringing people to live in the south. Infrastructure, business, accessibility, all aspects of life have been brought and adopted to the south in order to help populate the south. Can we really accept a situation in which the entire South can be shut down because Israel arrested one man? Is this not counterproductive to the point of dysfunction? Now, it is true that other countries like Qatar and Egypt are trying to mediate with Hamas in order to de-escalate the situation. But no diplomatic solution can come fast enough, and Israel is creating living conditions that are difficult and make even possible for citizens to keep their heads above water. Now, Israel is in a time of extreme change and extreme danger. On the economic front, prices are spiking. People are returning or recovering from the coronavirus pandemic, and elections are around the corner. The next government of Israel must make it a priority to structure Israel's security response in a way that makes living in the country's south fully livable. We have the Israeli officials have promised to provide financial compensation to those affected by the current situation because many citizens have no way of getting to and from work due to the road closures. We, the Israeli government has a very serious problem to solve. We live surrounded by terrorists, and how long can we allow this to happen? It restricts the life not only in the south, but even in the central most populated part of the country. Safety is a top concern. But living under a security lockdown and under an umbrella of security dangers with no end in sight and no updates for authority figures is simply no way to live. Israel at the moment is in an extremely dangerous situation. Our security is really questionable when we have we have allowed. Back in 2005, we left the Gaza Strip. It was taken over by terrorists. And now we have terrorism, active terrorism on our borders. The question is, how long can we live like this? One can only hope that the government is trying to figure out solutions. 
This, this is a very dangerous time, and if it, it continues, it will have a very bad effect on the country, even if no particular action is taken by the terrorists. The very fact that they are there and can threaten us at any time, including the central most populated area, is a situation that a country simply cannot live with. One can only hope that our leaders are figuring out how to get out of this situation. We got into it by mistakes our government made 25 and 20 years ago, and now we're living with those mistakes. They simply did not understand the nature of the enemy, and now we are living with the results of that misunderstanding. We can only hope and pray that our government can figure out how to get out of this existential problem. I have no solutions. I would like to think that those responsible do indeed have solutions. Since I spoke about danger on our borders, I want to mention another topic that you don't hear much about, but it is really important. The uh, There's a serious problem of uh, the lack of law and violence and crime on the streets of Arab towns and villages here in Israel. The, there's much violence. The, the, the interviews have been taken of Arabs and Jews who live in mixed cities like uh, Lud and Ramla. And it turns out these neighborhoods are unsafe because they have become uh, almost never, never, it's so dangerous that they never take a walk outside after dark because shootings occur on a daily basis. I'm talking about cities within Israel. The... uh, In order to solve this problem, there are apparently three main elements that have to be addressed. A greater police presence, resolving core issues that contribute to the situation, and installing behavioral change in Arab society within Israel. There is tremendous crime in the Arab areas of Israel. In August 2021, the Prime Minister, the Public Security Minister, the Police Chief, declared war on crime in Arab society. They launched a new unit called the Self, Sif, which means sword in Arabic, this, the aim is to eliminate violence on the Arab uh, street. The, and the, the police were apparently on the right track, and the death toll was indeed lower than last year's. However, it is still a difficult problem. Despite the police efforts, they apparently can't solve the problem. They don't have the ability to eliminate crime and violence in Arab society. They simply don't have enough manpower. But a police presence is not the only solution. 
There are other core problems that are leading Arab society into a situation where organized crime is controlling the streets and causes law-abiding citizens, Arabs and Jews, to live in fear, particularly in the mixed cities. One of the biggest problems that is rarely discussed is land ownership and the planning crisis that local Arab authorities are facing and how it contributes to the cycle of violence. Most of Israel's land is owned by the state. And this this allows the government to plan, develop, and build relatively free areas according to the needs of the citizens. But in the Arab towns, most of the land earmarked for development is privately owned, in many cases by multiple families, so the state needs their consent to advance development, making it virtually impossible to proceed. This situation led to a major housing crisis in Arab society in Israel. On the one hand, planning authorities are not willing to allow expansion of Arab towns because they are not implementing the current plans. And on the other hand, Arabs who seek housing elsewhere, mostly in Jewish cities, often face racism and are denied the ability to purchase or rent homes. These are the facts of life. Now, what has well, the result has been many Arab families build on empty plots near towns on land not intended for housing. And this is where the crime organizations come in. Banks don't give mortgages to families that are building illegally. So in the past two decades, when the housing crisis got out of hand, the crime groups who funding fund this situation thrived. And this is how the average citizen finds himself caught in the hands of a lending market run by Arab mobs. The uh, a state controller's report in 2019 criticized the state for not implementing reforms that would allow the development of private land, thus reducing the high population density in Arab towns. It also criticized the finance and construction ministries for lack of Arab representation on planning committees, resulting in an inability to address the problems of Arab society. According to the authorities, In recent years, we have seen a phenomenon, a worrying phenomenon, more and more murders of Arab women. The reason is not because of family dignity, as often described, it is because men refuse to accept the fundamental change Arab women are undergoing. Today, Arab women are getting stronger. They study, they go to college. It's not a coincidence, believe it or not, that two-thirds of Arab university students in Israel are women. Two-thirds. And a woman works and studies. Her status improves. She challenges her man and her society. And unfortunately, there are still men who cannot accept the idea of a strong woman who has a say in the house and also out of the house. 
In addition, Arab society needs to be active in education and explaining to its public and above all encouraging people not to turn to crime organization when there is a problem. The lack of law enforcement in Arab society in Israel, along with the weakening status of traditional powers like political parties, imams, family figures, fathers, they're pushing ordinary citizens into the hands of organized crime gangs. What's happening now in the Arab streets is textbook lawlessness. We've seen many places in the world recover from this kind of crisis with two government arms. One is punishing and deterring the criminals. The other is rewarding and investing in those who want to live an ordinary life. At the moment, there is much ignorance among the Israeli public about what's happening on the Israeli-Arab street. Most of us are shocked and saddened to hear that a mother's, uh, like a mother, and incident, uh, recently, a mother of three, an educated woman with an MBA in management, was shot to death in her parents' backyard just because she wanted to see her kids after hiding from her husband far from home. Let this this madness affecting over twenty percent of the country's citizens must be taken up by the government, and and these problems must be defined and solved. The uh, it's it's not their problem. It's not just the Arabs' problem. It's Israel's problem. Twenty percent of the population is living. And uh, under the rule, if you will, of crime gangs, that is a situation that simply cannot be tolerated. So this is another problem within Israel. At the beginning of the program, I spoke about the problem on our borders, but we also have a problem within Israel. Even those Arab citizens who want to be good citizens are living under the rule of gangs who control their society. These are these are uh, the type of things which you don't see any headlines about, but it is a really serious problem, not simply for the Arab portion of society, but for Israel as a whole. So we have a problem on our borders, and we have an internal problem. We can only hope that the politicians will turn their attention to these problems. This is a very sensitive time for the state of Israel, probably the most sensitive since Israel came into existence. And I'd like to think that the government is aware of these issues and does something about them, because obviously if nothing is done, the situation is going to get worse. So I don't like to be the uh, bearer of bad news to my listeners, but the facts remain. These are the facts on the ground that have to be dealt with. We have problem on our borders. We have a problem within our own society. This is beside other problems that we have in Israeli society in general, like which most uh, societies have. But we have the additional problem of Arab, Arab uh, uh, offensives on our border and the problem within Arab society within Israel. Keep in mind that the Arabs in Israel are voters.
They vote, most of the problem, mostly they vote for the Arab parties. And the question is, are these Arab parties really, do they really feel themselves responsible for the people that, that they represent? And from reading the headlines and seeing all the uh, internal fights among the Arab parties, one gets the impression that they worry only about their own seats and their own power in the Israeli government and in the Knesset. And that's a situation that this country cannot endure. I don't like to be the bearer of bad tidings, but we have to be realistic about the situation here in Israel. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. This is Jay Shapiro again. Thanks for listening. I want to say a few words about the fact that Israel is being charged with apartheid, rights abuses, and crimes against humanity in campuses all over the United States and even in the American Congress. And the same thing is happening in Europe, which is a very serious problem. This could become an existential threat both from within and without Israeli society, and it has to be clearly understood. Externally, the campaign against Israel, including within the American Congress, although it's only a fringe group, but it is a noisy fringe group, this campaign has begun to fracture the Western consensus on Israel's national security policies. Israel's Western allies say that they stand with Israel today. But will they continue to stand with Israel next year and the year after that and over five or ten years if the opinion of a growing body of their own citizens is turned against Israel and its defensive actions. If this is left unchecked, the unfortunate likelihood is that a point will be reached when policymakers in Europe and the United States can no longer afford to stand against the widespread view of their citizens that Israel is by definition a systematic oppressor. If such a view takes hold, it will mean that no defense of Israel with reference to the facts will be possible, that any actions Israel takes with respect to the Palestinians will be viewed as unjust and only remedy for the situation will be the complete defeat of the oppressor Israel. Right now, we see this happening Uh, With the Gaza situation, Israel is obviously defending itself, but there are voices in the West who are accusing Israel of aggression. 
Some observers have noticed that the internally here in Israel, the situation is even problematic. The danger is that the shame engendered by constant stigmatization will begin to fracture the national security consensus within Israel, especially among its younger citizens. The number of reports and accusations will sow doubt in the minds of citizens about the ethics of their national defense efforts. Global isolation and pariah status will cause them to regret the social and economic costs of that defense. Growing numbers will see military service as a moral stain and movements opposing such service, which already exist, will grow. And by the way, one of the defenses of against this pop, this possibility is Jewish education. I don't simply mean uh, religious education, but the, the schools in Israel over the years have reduced the number of hours spent on teaching and learning about the history of the Jewish people. So if you if you find yourself uprooted without a good education, knowing what it means to be a Jew, and I don't simply mean religious, I mean the fact that we belong to an ancient people, all that we have brought good to the world and so forth, things that I'm sure the listeners are familiar with, the lack of a good education here, uh, a good Jewish and uh, education, Zionist education, will weaken the next generation. The, uh, the those who are the young people who are safer in their homes now than any generation before. These young people will forget why Israel's national defense measures were instituted in the first place. They'll begin to be to long to be esteemed in the world outside of Israel and wonder whether a time might not come to compromise on their defense, even if that means risking the Jewish state for the alternative of a global diaspora free from charges of apartheid, rights abuses, and crimes against humanity. The, it could well be that a sense of discomfort will grow among the youth, uh, the youth and doubts about the justice of its cause. It is prevalent today among many young Jews in the diaspora. The fear and the problem is that it might take root among Israel's own young people. So both of these consequences, the undermining of solidarity, both from within, from within and without, carry grave implications for Israel's national defense efforts. And the, the Jewish state is most vulnerable. It will fraction foreign support by fracturing foreign citizens' opinion at the same time as fracturing domestic national security consensus. There are already, uh, we see demonstrations in Israel against the army, against the defense that Israel takes by fighting off terrorism. Believe it or not, if, if one doesn't follow the daily news 
And uh, under the headlines here in Israel, they might not be aware of how these groups mobilize and demonstrate against actions taken by Israel to defend itself. The the uh, the sobering result of this uh, assault is that Israel, with its allies, will at some future date do what its enemies cannot and pursue the dismantling of its conventional defense capacity, making disproportionate and reckless concessions to relieve the external internal pressure that would undermine Israel's military edge and leave the state in a very vulnerable position. It is very important that we capture the minds not only of foreigners, but even our own youth, to understand our history, why we are here, and why we have to take the steps needed in our defense. In light of these facts, there are those who say that since it's a matter of urgency, the government needs to draw up a coherent strategy and approach encompassing diplomatic, legal, and public relations elements. Internally, here in Israel, these efforts must include a well-thought-out strategy to win over the hearts and minds of young Israelis, the, uh, which means the really have to improve the national education system. There are those who are suggesting even more. They are suggesting that the necessary funding be provided so that vast legal teams can be assembled to challenge the apartheid accusation uh, across the globe. Research must be commissioned from think tanks and academic institutes to refute all the claims, no matter how small, against Israel's legitimacy. Israel's ambassadors and diplomats, Israel's teachers and youth leaders at every level must be trained and equipped to to deploy this research to counter the threat externally and internally. Every available communication platform must be filled with comprehensive content professionally presented refuting these terrible charge with Israel being charged on a daily basis around the world. The, uh, the, that, that is what must be done. We know that accusations such as the apartheid libel are total distortion of reality, but we must present this to the world. The truth is that Israel is one of the world's leading democracies. It's a beacon of freedom and human rights in a very violent region. Israel must muster the level of funding, expertise, and focus uh, against its opponents. Uh, our survival depends on this. So what Israel has done, by the way, the government has launched something called the Voices of Israel's Initiative. It's an initiative of the Israel's foreign ministry. And uh, what they're going to do is uh, essentially train people. They've given a hundred million check over four years and that it's allocated for a project uh, to, to uh, produce cores of people who can present Israel's arguments to the outside world and indeed 
even have uh, results on Israel's internal education system to see to it that the generation growing up understands what it means to have a Jewish state and what it meant not to have a Jewish state. So what what's happened is somehow we've become complacent. And the complacency is a danger to our future. So I just wanted to share these uh, thoughts with the listeners because I saw that uh, Israel, uh, the foreign ministry, has set up this thing called Voices of Israel. And I wanna, want the listeners to understand why this step has been taken. The question is, will it be well organized? Will it, uh, will it be reinforced by the proper types of people? Uh, who could present Israel's arguments to not only outside to uh, Israel, but also within our own educational system for the upcoming generation. It's just as important, both inside and outside. We have a foreign problem, we have a domestic problem, and we have to resolve both of them to ensure our future because it is a question of national security. And since I said a few words about how Israel looks to the outside world, I want to say a few words about uh, criticism of Israel. First of all, you have to address a certain question. Is there a meaningful difference between an accusation against Israel or criticism of Israeli policy. An accusation is a charge that isn't definitely true. It might be true, it might not be true, but the accuser is of the opinion that it is accurate. Now that's accusations. Criticism is generally leveled against a particular policy that all agree is true, but opinions differ whether the policy is proper or needs correction. Many in the pro-Israel community would accept legitimate and fair criticism, but do not tolerate unfounded accusations against Israel. Some people in the pro-Israel community uh, view all criticism that stems from people living outside of Israel, even if warranted, as unfair and therefore shouldn't be said. They argued that without being in Israeli shoes and standing in the place of Israelis, a non-Israeli can't possibly fathom the experiences that fed the calculation. Criticism of Israel may be reasonable, but the question is whether people delivering the criticism whether they have the right, since they can't possibly understand all that went into the making of the policy. In other words, living outside Israel and not being aware of the daily news and the daily pressures may give you the wrong understanding of what's happening here in Israel. Uh, there are others, both inside and outside of the pro-Israel community, that counter the argument that all criticism by non-Israelis is out of bounds by arguing that if the criticism is reasonable and accurate, there's no reason why it shouldn't be said. 
may add that if a Zionist is offering the criticism, it is being said in a constructive manner and should be heeded. To this group, there is no such thing as fair criticism that is out of bounds. The question of criticizing Israel is argued uh, by those outside of Israel is argued both in a pro, pro and in a con way. There's something called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which defined anti-Semitism as a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed toward the Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and their property toward the Jewish community, institutions, and religious facilities. That's the IHR a definition of anti-Semitism. They, they added all kind of examples of criticism that uh, the, they write, for example, criticism of Israel like that leveled against any other country cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic. The, the IHRA would never reject fair and warranted criticism of Israel as long as it wasn't delivered within a double standard, no matter who was delivering it. So the, um, as in most cases of both accusations and criticism, the defining line of what makes the criticism fair or anti-Semitic is dependent on who is saying it, why they're saying it, what they're saying, and how they're saying it. Some would also add when the person saying it residing matters as well. In other words, they say you can't criticize Israel outside of Israel, and others claim you can, as long as you uh, are pro-Israel, it doesn't matter where you live, you can criticize Israel. So... uh, This IHRA definition attempts to restrict the metrics of appropriate versus inappropriate criticism to what's being said, to who, why, what, and where it's being said are irrelevant to to characterizing the criticism as anti-Semitic. There are Zionists who agree and disagree with the restrictions set by this definition. So actually, Zionists shouldn't be concerned or overly defensive when reading criticism of Israel. uh, There are people who have a tendency to perceive all criticism of Israel as a threat or a call to delegitimize Israel, but it's not true. The, uh, instead of shifting into a defensive mode, twisting themselves into pretzels to demonstrate the criticism might not be accurate, people who are supportive of Israel and Zionists should admit Israel can make mistakes and work out on improving them. Improving them. If you listen to the people in the Knesset criticizing the government, if you took it out of out and didn't say who was saying it, you might consider it anti-Semitic. It's, it's not. Criticism of government policy is not only the role of the nation's citizens, it's their responsibility. Every citizen of a democracy... And Israel is a democracy, has a right to freely criticize the government without fear of persecution. 
a nation can't improve without an involved and critical citizenry that vocalizes their criticism to their leadership. A nation's leaders tend to live in an echo zone, assuming their policies are correct, and informed and critical citizenry allows the leaders to hear opinions from outside their own echo chambers. So Israelis Israelis uh, um, criticizing the government certainly are not anti-Semites. That brings up another uh, discussion that's been going on forever, or at least for a hundred years, I should say. Uh, There are those who say once the state of Israel was founded, Zionism no longer has a purpose because the purpose of Zionism was to establish a Jewish state. And therefore, now that we have a Jewish state, we're living in a post-Zionist time. The the Zionism, I think, is not about creating a state. It's about developing the Jewish people uh, in their own land. uh, To develop a state that's constantly growing and changing, Israel requires criticism. There's nothing wrong with criticizing, criticizing a legitimate government. In a certain sense, uh, criticism of Israel, when done properly, might be uh, the best form of Zionism. Uh, However, criticism of Israel's policy and government that is unwarranted or crosses the line into anti-Semitism is obviously out of bounds and unacceptable. Criticism by Israelis meant to improve Israel and, and, and constructively is not only acceptable, to, uh, in other words, that might be the present, uh, one or present definition of Zionism, trying to make the Jewish state better, even if it includes criticism. Uh, last Sunday, we commemorated Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, which is the saddest day on the calendar of the Jews. Now, uh, a lot of bad things happen. But two that really stand out were the destruction of the first and the second temple. And the destruction of the second temple by the Romans was the beginning of the exile of the Jews, which lasted close to 2,000 years until the state of Israel was founded in 1948. Now, something very interesting has come to light now. The researchers, archaeologists, have found where the Romans breached Jerusalem's walls back in the year 70. Uh, The position of the the Roman army's ballistae used in their attack on Jerusalem may have been found thanks to archaeological evidence and calculations made by the Israel Antiquities Authority, known simply as the IAA. Now, the findings came on Tisha B'Av, the Jewish fast day that mourns, among other things, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans during their invasion. The Roman Empire was the superpower of the ancient world two millennia ago and firmly dominated the entirety of the Mediterranean Sea. 
Its army was the powerhouse of the era, enforcing the empire's will on its conquered and subjugated lands. The imperial legions were vast, with a large number of flexible tactics and formations at their disposal, along with certain innovations and weaponry, such as the ballista. This is a way of throwing stones. It was with this might that the Romans, in an army led by Pompey the Great, would ultimately conquer Judea in the year 630 C, ruled at the time 633 before the Common Era, ruled at the time by the Hasmonean Kingdom, which technically preceded the birth of the Empire at the tail end of the Roman Republic. Most, but not all, Jews accepted Roman rule, especially in Judea, which, despite autonomy, was heavily beholden to Rome. Ultimately, in the year 66 of the Common Era, a Jewish revolt erupted against Rome, ruled by Emperor Nero. The Roman legions were led by a general named Vespasian. They were dispatched they were dispatched to quell this uprising. The widespread revolt would last for several years, ending with the fall of Masada in the year seventy three. But the most significant battle was the siege of Jerusalem in the year seventy. Now, this battle began after a brief lull in the, contact, in the conflict caused by Emperor Nero's death. Vespasian, who was the general here in Palestine, returned to Rome, becoming the new emperor, while his son Titus was left in command of the legions. He laid siege to Jerusalem for five months, he breached the walls and destroyed the temple. It was the end of a historical era for the Jews and the central trauma that gave birth to the day of mourning, Tisha B'Av, which we commemorated last Sunday. Actually, Tisha B'Av was on Saturday, but uh, it is a fast day, and you cannot fast on the Sabbath, except if Yom Kippur falls on the Sabbath, and this year, Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the month of Av, fell on Saturday. So we fasted and uh, essentially expressed mourning on Sunday at the beginning of this week. Archaeological, archaeological excavations over many years were able to uncover a significant quantity of Roman military equipment in the Jerusalem, much of it discovered by researchers in what's now the Russian compound near the Jerusalem municipality. It's right in the heart of town. So far, the excavated equipment consists of anything from ballistic stones, sling, story, sling stones, spears, arrowheads, swords, and catapults. In particular, the researchers focused on the ballista stones. Ballista themselves were large weapons of the ancient world that could be described as a sort of gigantic crossbow though the crossbow itself was a later weapon. 
These contraptions use springs for torsion in order to launch either heavy darts or large stones in siege warfare. They were first utilized by the ancient Greeks as siege weapons and were later incorporated by the Romans as they continued to expand their presence and adapt their military capabilities. Smaller forms of ballista called Scorpio were also used with more precision. Overall, though, they were used as siege weaponry. Ballista could also be described as an early form of artillery used to take out fortifications and to target soldiers. Now, this lines up with the siege of Jerusalem. Ballista stones have been found of varying weight and size, presumably launched in an effort to breach the walls and to prevent defenders from breaking cover to strike back. With this in mind, the researchers today studied and in the books, they started with the available information, and they also used keyboards. Much of the battle itself was described by Josephus in his work, The Jewish War. With this information, the researchers were able to match up the location of the siege with the location of the ballista stones, and then they could calculate the location from which they were fired. This complex calculation uh, had to factor in everything from the location of the city walls, the angles used to launch each stone, what their ranges were, and and the local topography. From there, the researchers learned two things, where much of the Roman artillery was located and where the Romans probably managed to breach the city walls. Regarding the location of artillery, a significant amount of ballistae seem to have placed in Cat Square, which is located in the center of modern Jerusalem. As to where the Romans likely breached the city, that would seem to have been today's Russian compound. So, in addition, excavations in the area were able to find remnants of the Third Wall, the outermost line of defense of the city. This area also had the largest amount of ballista stones, with hundreds, if not thousands, found in the area, seemingly directed at this specific spot. Josephus, the historian himself, seemed to have indicated as much with his writing stating that the Romans breached the wall in the northwest. It's no surprise to today's researchers could they came to the conclusion whoever controls this spot dominates the whole area and the fate of the city. So, the director of the Israel Antiquities Authority said the findings significantly helped to validate the records that we have of the siege of Jerusalem. The physical evidence of the huge resources employed by the Roman army in Jerusalem reflects the extremely harsh battles that eventually led to the destruction of the Second Temple. Notwithstanding the internal factions and the impossible odds, a small group of Jewish defenders withstood the Romans for several months until the tragic destruction of the city.
The use of up-to-date research methods reveals more and more about the fascinating history of Jerusalem. There also may a lot may be a lot more to discover in the area, with many weapons machines used by the Roman legions still unaccounted for. So the historians and the archaeologists say that we know from the historical sources from the Roman army that they employed massive siege rams to batter the fortification walls and siege towers that reached the height of the walls. These have yet to be found here in Jerusalem. So here we have on... on, uh, the anniversary of the saddest day in the Jewish calendar, they've had the archaeologists have found where the Romans breached through Jerusalem's walls, something that we memorialize to this very day. But here in Jerusalem, you dig down a little bit and you not only find history, but you find facts that authenticate what we know about that time, something I think is very uh, unique to the city of Jerusalem. So that that is the news about the destruction of Jerusalem that we know now on the week uh, commemorating the, the destruction itself. So right outside the city in downtown Jerusalem, a busy very busy area of the country, we found remnants of what was done by the Romans in order to to, to breach the walls of the city of Jerusalem and to destroy the temple, something we still memorialize to this very day. Now on to another topic. The world likes to condemn Israel when Israel is defending itself. Several weeks ago, we had what was called Operation Breaking Dawn, which was a long time in the making. Israel's southern communities have been in a lockdown for about a week and a half after Israeli security forces arrested Palestinian Islamic Jihad senior members Good intelligence and careful preparation are obviously necessary to to carry out such arrests. Residents of the south of Israel, who were held virtual hostages, now know why. Such intelligence and preparation also enabled the Israeli army to kill Islamic Jihad's top commander in the northern Gaza Strip, his Taysir al-Jabari, in a precise operation and essentially thwart a ticking time bomb. And on the news, when you saw how the uh, he was killed in an attack on the building in which he lived, you realize how it was really pinpointed. The buildings next door were untouched. Uh, this terrorist was reportedly involved in planning imminent major attacks on Israel, including the use of lethal anti-tank missiles close to our border. 
Other senior Islamic jihad figures were killed in well-conducted strikes over the weekend, including the Southern Division commander, a terrorist named Khalid Mansour. Now, although it's natural to compare the current round of fighting with the terrorists in Gaza to last year's Operation Guarding the Walls, which was when Hamas launched an attack on Israel starting on Jerusalem Day in May 2021, and I remember that because we were celebrating Jerusalem Day in the heart of Jerusalem when we were warned we have to get undercover because the city was being attacked by the uh, terrorists. Operation Breaking Breaking Dawn now so far seems to be more similar to something that was called Operation Black Belt in which uh, terrorists were killed and when Hamas chose not to get openly involved. Now, If Israel doesn't forcibly respond to the threats of one terrorist organization, the other organizations driven by the same desire to harm the Jewish state and to kill Jews will be emboldened, and that includes Hezbollah over Israel's northern border with Lebanon, as well as terrorist cells in Judea and Samaria. It, it, which is called the West Bank. You look, you look at the map of Israel, and we have terrorists on our northern border, in the center of the country, and on our southern border. And this is what we have to live with. Over the weekend, two weeks ago, the Islamic Jihad launched more than 350 rockets at Israel, and they followed up with a couple hundred more. Although the United States and others issued initial statements of Israel's right to self-defense, there were also immediate calls for Israel to prevent an escalation, and in fact, Israel was being told to stop responding. Now, Although Israel has the upper hand from a purely defensive viewpoint, like in now, as in previous times, the Palestinians have the advantage when it comes to public relations and international sympathy, and that's really a real serious problem. Whenever Israel justifiably responds to the indiscriminate firing of rockets, and, and if you think about it, every firing of a rocket is really a war crime. So Israel responds by carrying out attacks against terrorist targets in Gaza. The, and then Israel is immediately seen by the world and, and as unfairly, unfairly perceived as the aggressor rather than the victim. When they show footage of destroyed houses and uh, where children lose their lives, it doesn't do anything to help Israel's image. But our army shared evidence that the incident was the result of a rocket launched by Islamic Jihad that veered off its course and landed in the Gaza Strip and In other words, it was not the Israelis firing on Gaza that killed children. It was a rocket launched by the terrorists that simply landed on the wrong target. So 
the, it, oh, this is terrible. It, it, all these things are tragic. But the idea of Israel shooting at civilians is simply a lie. And the, the, many of the people in Gaza, unfortunately, are used as human shields by the terrorists. The willingness to use your own people as human shields and as props in a public relations war against Israel is a win-win situation for Palestinians and exploited by the Oli's Islamic Jihad and Hamas, all the other terrorist organizations. While Israel needs to maintain its policy of trying to minimize casualties among innocent people, it cannot simply stop fighting terror. Our country cannot afford a situation in which the terrorist organizations call the shots. Israel has to continue to fight back precisely and intelligently with clear goals and targets while also planning its exit strategy for when those goals have been achieved. Israel took the initiative and tackled the Islamic terror threat. It must also create a similar plan to maintain deterrence to prevent yet another round of violence in the near future. We can. We know. Everybody knows. Everybody with his with his head screwed on properly knows. Israel does not want the loss of life on either side, but allowing terrorist cells to grow is a danger to the Jewish state and also to the Palestinians themselves, as well as having ramifications across the region and beyond. The very name Islamic Jihad is a sign that this is a terrorist organization whose credo comprises death and destruction that like in a global jihad. Israel doesn't only have the right to defend itself, it has the duty to do so. The free world has to stand by Israel in its fight on terror as it fights on the front lines all around Israel. So the the loss of children on, in Gaza uh, is, of course, it's tragic. Any death is tragic. But to blame Israel for everything that goes wrong is simply wrong. And it's part of the terror campaign, the propaganda. They propagandize terror. These are the facts on the ground. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. I just want to say a few more words about the uh, essentially the war we had over the last several weeks with the terrorists in Gaza. Those who view the current operation as a success can cite a host of positive tactical numbers. Many Islamic Jihad top officials have been killed. Many of its assets have been destroyed by dozens of Israeli airstrikes. Their rockets so far have hit Israel less and killed fewer civilians than in prior skirmishes, and this is due to the Iron Dome's improved proficiency in knocking down incoming rockets. Now, the world seems to be happy to let Jerusalem hit Islamic Jihad without too much criticism as long as the conflict ends soon. Yet these are all tactical victories. Uh, what will stop the next Islamic Jihad leader from firing rockets on Israel in the next couple months or within the next couple years? You, you kill off the leaders, but they're replaced. 
And you put aside the 40 and 50 year old leaders, most of the terrorist movement is made up of young adolescents with many mid-level commanders who are in their 20s, just like the Israeli army. To fire rockets or give orders to fire rockets, one does not need to have decades of experience or be a rocket scientist. Islamic Jihad is about as low tech and low maintenance as a terrorist group comes. As long as Gaza and Israel are in conflict, it will be able to depend on a steady stream of radical adolescents who want action against the Jewish state. They hear it in their educational system and they hear it in their mosques. And even if some of the fighters not as religious as the terrorist group would like, they have become the tip of the spear in Gaza against Israel, as opposed to Hamas, by the way, which has become more of a status quo power fearing major conflicts. They can manufacture rockets at home at an incredibly low cost. All they need to do is fire a smattering of rockets and the entire Israeli South closes down, whether anyone dies or not. Fire a few longer-range rockets toward the center of the Israel and Tel Aviv, for example, and the majority of Israel will be running in panic the bomb shelters. So after all of the compliments about the Israeli army's undeniable tactical prowess, Israel will remain with the same strategic problems after any operation and may face another round of rockets maybe in a year or two. There are probably broader solutions, a deeper ground force operation into Gaza that truly deters both Hamas and Islamic Jihad, or an aggressive diplomatic horizon with the Palestinian Authority that reduces support internally for Gaza's present rulers. In addition, there are other medium-term creative solutions, I'm sure there are. There are those who suggest giving Gaza an artificial port to open it up further to the world in exchange for a longer-term ceasefire with Hamas. But no Israeli government for well over a decade has seriously considered any options for changing the strategic situation and what is the strategic situation? A poorly armed ragtag terrorist group can bring the Middle East premier power to its knees, at least for a few days, anytime it chooses. That is the sad reality. I would like to think that uh, there are people who can come up with solutions. There were solutions years ago to simply say, move the... Uh, Arabs from Gaza into the Sinai. The all kind of solutions that were considered crazy and they weren't paid attention to. In other words, the, most of these solutions depended on the idea of transfer of population. None of these was ever looked at seriously and we're left with a situation. We have neighbors next to us on the Gaza Strip and in Lebanon who simply can choose to to shoot at Israel and to kill Israelis any time they would like. 
This is a terrible situation, and something really has to be done about it. Incidentally, uh, there are some interesting facts about this uh, problem, which has no solution. There are some facts having to do with the uh, capability of the so-called Iron Do Iron Dome. The Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system shot down 97% of Palestinian rockets, uh, in, which it, it, it intercepted during the Gaza fighting, which is an improvement in the performance of the Iron Dome, which essentially started as an American system. It was given to Israel, and Israel improved it. The uh, Iron Dome was first put in the field in 2011, it's 11 years ago, which launches guided missiles to hit incoming rockets and other short-range threats in midair. It was rated at first as 85% successful by Israeli and U.S. defense officials, and in a war against Gaza in 2012, it increased to 90%. Now, these uh, these missiles are made by Rafael Advanced Defense Systems, which is state-owned here in Israel, and they're made with the support of U.S. firm called Raytheon Technologies, and the Iron Dome is designed to economize on costly interceptor missiles by engaging only rockets that are on a trajectory to hit populated areas. In other words, this system spots rockets that are coming and can tell which direction they're heading and what their probable targets are, and then it, it acts against them. It has intercepted 97% of these rockets during a flare-up of fighting with the Palestinian Islam operations two weeks ago. Uh, it was the system's best performance so far. So the people in charge say that they're improving our capabilities all the time. Islamic Jihad has fired almost 600 rockets on Israel during uh, a few days, a couple weeks ago. 20% fell short within Gaza, while the rest had reached as far as the outskirts of Tel Aviv and the outskirts of Jerusalem. So we are living essentially under an umbrella of terror. These are the facts on the ground. And we continue our daily lives as best as we can with the knowledge that our defense forces are doing the best they can, but of course they're not perfect. So to the best of my knowledge, there is no other country that lives under an umbrella of terror the way Israel does. And the fact that we continue to develop and flourish in spite of this says something really nice about Israel and about the Jewish people. I'd like to uh, mention uh, one of the side effects of the recent clash with the terrorists, something that doesn't get big headlines. As a result of Operation Breaking Dawn several weeks ago, uh, which in, it was essentially an escalation of attacks against the southern part of Israel, the Aliyah and Integration Ministry began to conduct updates in a number of languages in order to assist the thousands 
of new Olim living in the South who have been facing the security rea reality in Israel for the first time. The ministry established a hotline for emotional support for new immigrants, for Olim, and for returning residents. The, the thing was uh, started several weeks ago with a, in cooperation with something called the Community Stress Prevention Center. Since the beginning of 2022, over 42,000 new immigrants have immigrated to Israel from around the world. 34,000 of them immigrated from Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding countries. And about 1,000 new immigrants, Olim, arrived from Ethiopia. This emotional and informational hotline operates in a variety of languages and the conversations are completely discreet and there is complete confidentiality for each applicant. The hotline numbers are given and in they can they are in, their numbers are given so people can speak to get emotional help French, English, Spanish, Russian, and Amharic, the language of the Ethiopians. In the, me, in the meantime, the Aliyah and Absorption Ministry, in cooperation with the Home Front Command, began distributing information in the different languages uh, by soldiers in a variety of communication channels and networks. And in addition, employees of the ministry, the Jewish agency, have conducted inspections in different facilities where the new immigrants live, such as absorption centers, in order to make sure that the protected areas and bomb shelters are operating and adequate. So it's interesting, you have a lot of people who are coming under attack who don't speak Hebrew. So they have to be addressed and helped in their own native language. So the Aliyah and Absorption Ministry, which uh, when I when I first came on Aliyah 50 years ago, it simply essentially helped people to get settled. But now they have to help people also to protect themselves, and particularly those living in the South, although also throughout the country, they have to get all the necessary assistance for defense in this emergency. And the government is reacting positively and doing what it can. That's something you don't hear much about, but but it's good that the um, uh, Immigration Absorption Ministry understands the problem and is doing something about it. Another subject uh, which doesn't get uh, big headlines, uh, it's the response to uh, Israel being attacked, is that Jewish organizations all over the world have shown support for Israel and the Israeli army during this uh, recent operation. And uh, the, the operation currently being carried out by Israel's military against Palestinian jihad is a necessary measure to preserve civilians in the midst of conflict. This is a statement made by the World Jewish Congress. The Jewish Federation of North America uh, said our hearts are with the people of Israel as many families spent the night in bomb shelters 
While the rockets continue to rain down from Gaza, no group which seeks the elimination of the Jewish state can be allowed to thrive along its borders. Now, there's also the Australia, Israel, and Jewish Affairs Council. They condemned the continued targeting of Israeli civilians. And um, in other words, Jews all around the world are coming to support Israel. Israel has a right to defend its citizens. The um, and also French Jewry has a uh, umbrella organization called the CRIF, and they they retweeted that the missiles and rockets fired by the Islamic Jihad in Israel, at Israel's cities have one goal to to indiscriminately kill civilians. Like any democracy, Israel protects its people. France also committed against terrorism must firmly support Israel. And the European Jewish Congress published a statement on social media saying, once again, Israel is under attack. Over 450 rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel. Uh, and uh, we stand firmly with the people of Israel. And the Anti-Defamation League wrote on Twitter, we're watching the developments on the ground in Israel closely and pray for the safety of all. We stand alongside Israel and its right to self-defense against a direct threat to Israeli citizens. And the American Jewish Committee, Committee wrote on its Facebook that its members stand in solidarity with the people of Israel as the Iranian-backed Palestinian Islamic Jihad terror group fires rockets in Israeli towns and cities. Millions of Israelis are currently under threat. Israel has the right and duty to protect its citizens against terror. And the American Jewish Congress also wrote a message of support on Facebook saying we stand with Israel and the Israeli civilians facing rocket attacks from terrorist groups in Gaza, and Israel has the right to defend itself and its citizens. In other words, the international Jewish organizations came out that they're standing with Israel. And that's something. I mean, it would be nice if they all came on Aliyah and we had more people here. But the very fact that they feel that they have to speak out, that Israel has a right to defend himself, that's part of the brotherhood of the Jewish people. And uh, we, have to, uh, we have to appreciate what they did. By the way, another uh, thing, another incident, uh, or a subject recent um, war is um, that uh, it has to do with midwives. Women who are due to give birth in days or weeks have been stressed in the shadow of the rocket missile fire from Gaza, and the Israel Midwives Association has published on vice advice on how to stay calm. That's something that's really under the headlines, that midwives are giving tips on keeping calm under fire. I mean, every, every part of Israeli society is affected by the general situation Situation, including, of course, pregnant women. The organization, which represents 1,300 nurse midwives in public hospitals around the country, came out with a statement, we hope our recommendations will help pregnant women to reduce negative emotions and survive during these difficult weeks until arriving in the delivery room. Guidelines about when to go to the hospital 
uh, such as when pregnant women's water break and how frequent labor pains are relevant in situations of acute security threats as well as in normal times. So they put out a statement that said, it's important to know that the subconscious of, and of all of us is affected by images and sights. Therefore, it's recommended to reduce TV viewing and frequently think about beautiful sights and pleasant memories. You can go back again in your imagination, good things that happened to you in the past. Look at pictures you saved on your phone, upload it to social media, or, keep it, or kept in albums. In other words, the... the Midwives are making a positive effort to help pregnant women to get through these times of stress, and they're going down to the very details, like looking in their old albums at at pictures that give you happy memories. The, uh, and they were, they went on to say, the more we draw in our imaginations over and over again, a good scenario that happened to us as a family, the better we will feel in this way, we will strengthen the immune system and reduce the secretion of the stress hormone cortisol, whose rise can increase restlessness. So the uh, the midwives also recommended writing empowering sentences related to the family and the upcoming birth, such as, my baby will arrive in time and join the family that's waiting for him. I trust myself to know what is good for me and the, the fetus inside me. It's important to smile, even if it's staged and forced, because a smile contributes to a more positive feeling. It's advisable to do breathing exercises that one learned at pregnancy classes, breathe in through the nose, wait a few seconds, then release the air slowly and consciously. The exercise should be repeated between 5 to 20 times at your own pace. The midwives also suggested listening to happy music and dancing. If these are other children at home, the mother and children can dance together. Try not to be alone. So here you are. We are facing the terror from the Gaza Strip. We're fighting it off with uh, anti-missile missiles, with uh, defense systems, and we are being supported by Jewish organizations around the world. And it gets down to the very uh, nitty-gritty of helping pregnant women get through this period and stay calm and have a healthy baby. Thanks for listening. Jay Shapiro signing off. Autonomous mobile robots, otherwise known as AMRs, operate in many work environments, including factory floors, where they perform many essential functions, including forklifts and other transportation tasks. At times, a factory floor can seem like a busy intersection at rush hour. An Israeli firm called 634AI is working on an artificial intelligence-powered centralized control tower to track the location and movement of AMRs, helping to enable efficient and safe indoor operations. The product is called Maestro and offers a constant visual mapping of the entire floor, helping to manage hazards and obstacles. Maestro tracks the robot's movements, including utilization data for forklifts, as well as safety alerts for forklift drivers, helping to navigate the movement of autonomous mobile robot fleets. For more information on the high-tech world today, visit IsraelTechTalk.com. With your INTR Tech Minute, I'm Bob Aiello. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. 
We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 